welcome to the Sports Grab Podcast, your bite-sized guide to enter the sports industry. Today, this bonus episode is proudly supported by Deakin University and is coming to you straight from the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Now, Rubes has been on the ground for the last two weeks of the group stage and the round of 16, and he's going to share his observations from the most controversial tournament in history what it was like from an Australian perspective to witness the Socceroos' most successful campaign ever. Plus, he even caught up for a special interview with the Chairman of Football Australia, none other than Chris Niku. My name is Ryan Walker, and I'm joined by the Socceroos' number one ticket holder, Ruben Williams. How are you, mate? G'day, Ryan. I'm doing well, thank you. I'm a bit crook and a bit sick from a long trip in Qatar, but it's been sensational, thank you. But it's good to see you again. Brilliant. Well, it's very good to have you speaking once again. Haven't had as much contact with you over in Doha. You've been enjoying your time at the World Cup, so it's very exciting to chat with you, my dear friend. Now, we are two mates who met working at Cricket Australia, but we've left that behind to start helping others land their dream job in sport. If you want to follow us, head over to LinkedIn or even better, if you want to connect with us and hundreds of others working in sport, jump into the SportsGrade community. And a quick shout out to all our sports grad members in the community. In particular, I want to call out Sam Hickson. He's our he's our man at Football Australia who has become my ticket guy at this FIFA <laughs> World Cup. He's been able to get us into all the Australia games as well as around 16. And when I caught up with Chris Niku, I asked him about Sam. He said, yeah, he's my ticket guy as well. So Sam's been fantastic. Really? But one thing I've really enjoyed as well about the community whilst I've been over here is that the live sport chat has just been going off every single day. Uh, and even the, uh, the meme channel came to life one morning when I um, found a way to get my mug on TV with a, with a sign. And um, so the community is going off at the moment, but then the jobs keep coming through a big congrats to uh, Bradley McGee. I want to call out who has just got a job at cricket Australia back home. The Aussie test summer is just kicked off and brad has just joined the digital team as a social media producer so well done to you brad but if you want to get one-on-one introductions q a's with podcast guests a private discord server and a bank of over 40 hours of recordings and join over 430 others inside the sports grad community and become a member to do so head to sportsgrad.com.au forward slash community to join brilliant mate well rubes you are in Doha, Qatar, uh, and it's fair to say I've got a couple of questions for you. We want to hear what it's like on the ground over the World Cup. You are very lucky that you got to go, and I must say it has been crazy over here. Like everybody is into the World Cup. You should have seen all the major cities having the like live sites. It is absolutely insane. So can I understand what, what, what was the setup like over there because it, it looks incredible on TV. Yeah, well like it everything about uh Qatar is pretty surprising and pretty pretty shocking but also pretty amazing at the same time as well. But I'll give you a little bit of context as to um where I was. So originally Sorry, yeah, we wait, come... b- before I get into that, how did you even get a place to stay? I might just throw that out first. <laughs> well, we had 7 days booked in one of the clusters which is like this like army barracks type setup that is just blank rooms, two single beds. And uh, that was going to be our accommodation until uh, my good friend Akil came to the party and said that, hey, my parents have been living over in Qatar for the last 22 years. Akil and I connected when I was living down in Lawn. Um, 
and he said, just come and stay with my parents. I'll happily look after you, after you. Now, my friend Akil uh, is an Indian bloke. His parents are Indian, and we got the full Indian treatment. We had more food pushed upon us than we could handle. Uh, I'm terrible with spice, so any time that they cook something and I couldn't handle the spice, they would just laugh at me. Um, I think they've run out of yogurt, given how much yogurt I've tried to yeah. add to every single meal. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, like within first, within like the first ten minutes of walking into their house. The conversation quickly turned to, are you married? When are you getting married? Why are you not married soon? So <laughs> we, uh, we've been very lucky to have a very generous host. But then Qatar itself, so every day we'd go out into Doha and we had um, we had nine matches to attend across 13 days. And um, typically you'd catch the metro everywhere. All the transport here is like brand new and terrific. Uh, so everything's super, super clean and well set up. Um, but the best bits were these volunteers who were on every single corner of the street and in the inside the um, uh, train stations who would stand there with like these big hand signs and say, Metro, this way, Metro, this way. And it became a bit of a meme because wow. everyone started like chanting it back to them. And then some of the more creative volunteers would like turn it into a bit of a game. So they would say, Metro, and then all the crowd would go this way, Metro, <laughs> this way, which way, this way, which way, this way. So um, there are a few viral TikToks going around of these these volunteers just ushering crowds of people towards the the metro. Um, yep. and my mate Scott and I we uh we took signs to most of the games, and one one game I wrote Metro this way on the back of the sign, which uh received a fair bit of interest. So. Um, that was probably nice. the, uh, the quote of the tournament Metro this way. <laughs> um, <laughs> like all of that was built brand new. The, um, the train stations, Metro was fantastic. They had buses galore, like more buses you could even poke a stick at, but then you'd arrive at the stadium and the crowd control was just like, it just didn't make sense. Like you were being ushered in directions that would take you on a four kilometer walk to get to the front door of the stadium. And now we know like why they were saying to us, like get to the ground two hours early because you will be made to go through this maze to get to a stadium that you can see right in front of you. Like it was not obvious. Mm. <laughs> it made me yeah. very appreciative of the MCG and how easily they get a hundred thousand people into the stadium and then straight out of the stadium. Like yeah. um, I think a lot of people have been to the sport in, in Melbourne in particular, would just get frustrated at the fact that you can't walk around the entire stadium, even though it is a circle, or you can't yeah. head in one general direction and expect to arrive there, or you can't even like go to the nearest barrier to get wanted and scan your ticket and go through. Like the guards are saying, go to the very end, go to the very end, go to the very end. Like even though there is no mm. one going through their scanning gate, they've clearly been given a directive to say like, all right, let's get everyone through this one first and then we'll come back. So like there wasn't a lot of common sense used with yeah. the crowd management, which was kind of frustrating, but you couldn't really like argue with them either because they were just taking orders from someone higher up and just trying to do their job. So you kind yeah. of just had to like suck it up and go in. Yeah. But then that's super like, weird. Yeah, I know. I know. And like, they were just like, um, Again, like when you get to the metro, the metro would have 
four entrances, but they'd close off three so that everyone went through the same one. And to get to the metro entrances, there'd just be barriers zigzagging you up and back for literally kilometers on end before you even got mm. to the gate of the metro. It didn't matter how didn't matter how busy the metro was, you had to go through the zigzagging barriers. So yeah, a lot of the crowd control is a bit frustrating at time. But yeah. once you were inside the stadiums, these were incredible. Um, they're all built brand new and they'd all been built from uh, built to replicate these significant things in Qatar. So you had um, stadiums like Al Thamama that looks like a traditional hat and you had Al Bayat, which looks like a, this traditional tent. And then you had Al Janoub that looks like I don't know what, but I'll let you make your mind up when you when you look at that stadium once you see it. But um, <laughs> the stadiums were were very very cool in the way that they constructed them, designed them, and um, put them together. So, uh, but then outside of that, like everywhere you walked around Doha, like skyscrapers were like cladded with posters of Messi and Ronaldo, yeah. and there was just signage everywhere. Like you, you could not miss the fact that the FIFA World Cup was going on. So, um. Now, Doha really went all out in terms of the setup for the World Cup. Speaking of the, the stadiums, obviously filled with people, um, what were the fans like? Was it, you know, was it what you expected or was it, you know, less or more or how, how did mm. that play out? Yeah, well, like the, the fans are the best bit of the World Cup. I think anyone who's like been traveling will say that oh, you you go traveling and the, the people that you meet are the best bit. Well, the FIFA World Cup is comfortably the yeah. easiest place in the entire world to to meet people. And um, so we went to nine matches, and um, in that, um, like we would try and hang out with the the fans of the teams competing pregame. So. You know, before we go to an England match, we would go and find the English fans to to sit in the bar with them, chat with them, sing songs with them. Before the Australia match, we'd go to the Australian bar. Um, and even before one of the Brazilian games, we stumbled across the Brazilian bar by accident. And uh, the Brazilian yeah. bar was a lot more sophisticated and organized. They had like a 15-piece a band upstage playing uh, Brazilian songs and everyone singing in unison together. It was actually really quite nice to to witness. Yeah. So, um, so that was amazing. Like you literally walk into any bar. Sometimes I'd be by myself. Sometimes I'd be with Scott and a few other mates, and people just start chatting to you. Now, if you weren't at the um at the bar with all the fans, you would then go to the fan festival. And the fan festival was like this live site that held about 40,000 people. It's like this huge space. They've got several big screens there, um, bar food, all these different activations and activities going on. And, you know, at night, if you weren't going to a match, you'd go here to, to watch the games. And you could literally just stand there and someone would come up to you and ask you how your team was going. And so everybody in the live site was wearing their colors. Didn't matter if Australia was playing or not. You'd wear your Australian jersey that night. And then within like a couple of minutes of just like plonking yourself down, someone would come up to you and be like, hey, Australia, good win the other day. And you'd get chatting to them and learn about where they come from and how their team's going. And so the, um, yeah, the fans were, the fans were awesome. It became incredibly easy to, to talk to people and, um, nice. 
I think even like going into one random bar one day, we just asked if we could use the other side of a couch. We ended up meeting this guy called Adam from the US. He ended up buying us all our drinks. Um, at the Brazilian bar, we went up to this random bloke and said, hey, guess what country we're from? So uh, this guy called Felipe, he guessed we were Australian straight away, so we became good mates with him. Um, and then in the fan fest, um, uh, I met a couple of mates who, uh, there were these two Indian guys who were from Kerala, moved to Qatar and had adopted Brazil and Argentina as their teams. And But when they found out I was from Australia, we got started chatting cricket. So it's very easy to yeah. talk to people over there. Nice, man. It sounds like everyone literally just goes to bars and watches the games together and it doesn't matter where you're from. They're like you just find common ground somehow. And I mean, that is that you, you have a passion for football. Um, mm. But it sounds super fun. It looks super fun. Looks like everyone's just a good person. Yeah, 100%. And like your itinerary is locked in every single day because at the start, start of the tournament, you had four games a day. I think it was like 1 p.m., 4 p.m., 7 p.m., 10 p.m. And you just you know, you just go out and watch every single game. I think um, Mm. um, I'm sure Qatar has a very rich culture and history, but there wasn't an obvious amount of extra things to do as there might be if you were visiting the Brazil World Cup, for example. So um, there wasn't as much pressure to go out and do a whole lot of sightseeing at this World Cup as uh, there was compared to when I went to Russia. Yeah, nice. No, fair enough. And... um, so take us through the matches because, I mean, that is the main event <laughs> is why you are there. Um, what was it like being there? Yeah, so we went to nine matches and and in that we uh, we kind of ticked every single box that we wanted to. So we went to an English match and got to sing with the England fans. We got to see Ronaldo play. We saw Mbappe play twice. We got to see Messi play um, we got to see a previous World Cup final rematch between Spain and Germany, which was just like the best amazing standard I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, yeah. But then above all, all that, we got to see the Socceroos win two games, which they've never done in a World Cup before, and got to see them at the round of 16. Um, the win against Tunisia was, was obviously awesome, but then the match against Denmark was just absolutely insane. Um, we had a bit of a... a timer going on Scott's phone to count down the the extra time until the final whistle when we knew we'd be making the round of 16 and as soon as that whistle went like the emotion was just off the charts everyone around you is jumping up and down screaming hugging each other people were hanging around the stadium for the next half an hour just just chatting with each other just cheering celebrating um all you could see the soccerers on the pitch they were going nuts as well and uh, that that was a game that I decided to make a cheeky little sign saying, "Give us a public holiday." <laughs> and um, and um, as soon as we won, that got quite a bit of attention. Everyone inside the stadium like started taking photos with me, coming up asking for a photo. Yeah. Um. So that was that was quite funny. Every time I'd walk past a news station, they'd be like, "Oh, you, you got a great sign. Like, come up here. Have you got a message for Anthony yeah. Albanese?" And so <laughs> I don't I don't know where half of those um little segments Mate, went. But <laughs> the amount of times that I saw that photo, it was on like the BBC, it was on points bet. Like every, everyone was like using it as like memes all over social media. Mm. And, and I reckon I got about fifty messages saying, Wait, 
is that Ruben? And I was like, <laughs> yes, you are seeing, you are seeing correctly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, so I, I got, funny. I was getting messages from blokes I did internships with five years ago who are now living in Scotland. Someone who I did a study trip to the US with who lives in the US who I haven't spoken to since 2017 told me that it was on TV in the US as well. So, um, yeah. yeah, got my 15 minutes of fame, which, um, which was kind of funny. But, was um, amazing. but then that night we went back to the Aussie bar and that was like the most incredible night of my entire life. And I think when you've got like a bar full of, people are all celebrating the same thing and with the magnitude of qualifying for the round of 16 at a world cup added to it, it would just be just create this like amazing yeah. scene where everyone was just committed to the night and everyone was dressed in yellow. Everyone's singing a traditional Australian song. So uh, yeah, one of the, one of the great nights, that's for sure. But then um, amazing. But then we had to prepare ourselves for the uh, round of 16 match against Argentina where um, we were all kind of grouped together behind the goals in this Australian section. And um, we obviously wanted to win, but having Messi score right in front of us was was pretty phenomenal. When we went to the Portugal-Uruguay match to go and see Ronaldo, we were right up the top and you could kind of see him as a little speck. But you could yeah. literally make out the features on Messi's face standing right in front of you. And when he scored, he was looking straight at the Australian cheer squad, just going like, this is why I'm the best guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I remember seeing it, I did see it was right in front of the Aussies. Yeah. <laughs> but I was kind of like, it's kind of amazing. Like, you don't want him to score, but if anyone was going to, like, you're kind of happy that Messi did. Yeah. Yeah. So he he, he was incredible to witness because. In defense, he would not chase the ball. I've never seen anyone walk more on a park in my entire life. But then they'd mm. spring into attack and he'd be on. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, yeah. this guy's going to do something incredible at any moment. But then um, the bit that I didn't expect from that game was the Argentina fans. So the stadium was probably 45,000 in capacity. And there would have been at least 30,000 Argentina Tinians in the crowd. Yeah. And these 30,000 were louder than the 90,000 at India versus Pakistan. I was mm. at that game at the MCG and that was that was insane, but it felt like the India Pakistan game was just like it was just like a wall of noise, like everyone was just kind of screaming, shouting, doing their own thing. Whereas yeah. these Argentina fans were like completely in unison. Like every single song, it wasn't yeah. just like the active area behind the goal singing. It was every single Argentina supporting the entire stadium singing. And they'd do all these different dances. One of them, they'd be waving their hands in the other. Another one, they'd like wrap their arms around each other and bounce from side to side. And it just happened the entire way around the stadium. Like mm-hmm. we were a bit stunned at how like overwhelming it was because every single Argentina fan was was cheering in unison, yeah, which was really yeah. cool to see. And I think like you hear all about how passionate South American supporters are until you witness it firsthand, you know, yeah, it all kind of makes sense. Oh, it's incredible. It sounds literally amazing. You would have been in your element. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, the morning after, and I don't know how you did this because if this was me, I wouldn't be able to do this very well, but 
morning after Australia beat Denmark, you would have been absolutely on cloud nine. You had the opportunity to catch up with the chairman of Football Australia, Chris Niku. How was that? Yeah, well, I think I had about four hours sleep after I'd been at the Australian bar that night, but um, got myself up and caught a taxi into his hotel and met him in the hotel uh, restaurant and just kind of sat down next to him with my my little microphone and and asked him a few questions. But um, no, it was, it was awesome to catch up with Nick. Um, uh, sorry, Chris. It's the uh, issue of someone with two first names. <laughs> Um, I was going to say, is that like it? Is it? Is he? Is that his nickname, Nick? No, Chris no. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but Chris and I actually caught up at the World Cup in 2018. Back then, um, Sportsgrad was just a YouTube channel, and I sent Chris a very cold message on LinkedIn to say, "Hey, mate, I run this little channel. Any chance you could meet up for an interview?" And I tried to catch him in Melbourne. That didn't work out. So we ended up catching up in Russia, in Samara of all places. And so Chris was very generous with his time to to chat with me back then. And um, and uh, he was nice enough to give me his time again straight after Australia had just qualified for the round of 16. So he was in good spirits and, um, yeah, asked him a bit about what was going on behind the scenes of Football Australia, what it was like being chairman, um, what this all means for Football Australia and the the legacy that it will create and the impact Mm. it will have um, on Football in Australia going forward too. So, yeah, really interesting to to get his thoughts on on what this all means for for Football in Australia. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing this as well because it's a great sort of full circle moment. The fact that you spoke to him four years ago and then again now, um, it would have been pretty cool. So um, sit back, enjoy this chat with FA Chairman Chris Nickers. Pleasure to catch up with you at the World Cup again. How are you feeling after last night? Big night, wasn't it? Uh, I'm very uh, happy for not just the players, but the whole country and all the, the real football people who've been waiting for a night like last night. And uh, the messages keep flooding in well after the game, so it's been a fantastic uh, 24 hours. It's it's been um been a pretty good um, time for you as chairman because I remember when Australia got awarded the FIFA Women's World Cup. There's this great photo of the Matildas celebrating. You're at the front of the room, hands in the air. Now the Socceroos are through to round 16. Life's pretty good at the top, hey. Don't know about that. It has its moments. So that photo that you're referring to, I got a lot of stick from my friends for not having a lot of elevation in the jump. But um, no, look, it's a great time and it's a testament really to everyone that's involved and the hard work that's going on. So it goes to show that if we as a sport bandy together and we get, remain focused and we're all going in the one direction, really good things can happen. So we're hosting a World Cup. We've got the Socceroos progressing to the knockout stages, back-to-back wins, clean sheets, all wonderful stories. Uh, A-League up and about again, um, lots of things to look forward to, community football getting back post-pandemic to normal levels, so as I said, if everyone works together, there's you know really good days ahead. Fantastic, I think not many people would know that you are a lawyer, you've been a lawyer for, for 21 years as well, how do you balance being a lawyer on top of your role as chairman? Yeah, it's actually probably 31 years. 31 years? Uh, yeah, yeah, so yes, I do have a day job, contrary to what people believe, uh, which is a full-time role as a... Uh, corporate lawyer in a large global legal firm. So it's, it, look, it's time consuming, and you're sort of you're on your phone all the time managing the legal side and, and the football side. But uh, football sort of drives many of us. It's the passion side, so um, you find the energy somewhere. But it means we don't have a lot of uh, free time. But uh, 
not complaining. No one's going to listen <laughs> if you do complain. So I'm just really happy for the sport to be moving forward. And and how did you um, start to move your career into sport? Because I'm guessing there's a lot of lawyers out there who would just practice law. When, what was your first job in sport? So I played at the lower levels. So um, falling into the category of the older I get, the better I was. But I really enjoyed the, the football side. And long story short, when I finished playing, I joined the Football Victoria, or the VSF board, as it then was the the appeals board, uh, as a lawyer because of my skill set. Then got asked to uh, join the the board itself, which I did. That coincided with the introduction of the A League, and I was asked to then be the go between Melbourne Victory and Football Victoria, uh, which I did. Uh, and it sort of snowballed from there, from company secretary, then got picked up for the Asian organising committee uh, from uh, Sir Frank Lowy at the uh, at the time got onto the Football Australia board and then chairman and here we are today. So uh, I think you sort of build, build on things and uh, you get to know people and you, and you build your networks. Mm. And, and what is the, the selection process like at, at, at a board level? Like when you're going from nothing to, to board member, what does that process look like? Is it an interview? Is it, you know, do you submit a resume? What, what does it look like? I think the resume sort of gets you the interview. So if you, mm. people can see a broad understanding of sport hopefully football but even other sports helps so and typically at at the FA level we've got a skills matrix so no one candidate's going to tick all the boxes but you look for a core competency across a number of uh, areas legal being one sports administration being the other and then it's really I think cultural fit with the people and and building a relationship and then across the the board what what are the different um, skills that the FA board is trying to hit between all its members yeah, so if you look at the Football Australia board, we have a, a board of nine, which is six selected. We've just gone through an AGM, so we've added two new people, um, Anter Isaac and Jackie Lee Joe, bringing different skill sets, but both very valuable. Uh, and we've got three appointed. So the way it works is our members uh, elect six, and then depending on that skill set or if there are gaps, we've got the right to put in three further ones. So you look for a cross-section. So on our board at the moment, we've got some former players in uh, Mark Bresciano, uh, Amy Duggan and Heather Garriock. So the, the football side is, is taken care of. There's legal, there's accounting, there's business, there's commercial. The things that then help you build an organisation. And it, the role of the board really is to provide uh, guidance to the management team and set the direction and let them uh, then deliver on it. And then going from board to, to chairman, what, what did that process look like? Probably diplomacy, I think. Um, <laughs> look, you know, those who follow football know that we're a very broad church, as I say. We, you've, you've got grassroots, you've got um, the, the elite side, both national teams and A-leagues, mm-hmm. men's and women's. And we've got a very broad stakeholder group from you know, our Indigenous to um, the, the, the Pararoos and the Paramatildas. So it's really sort of having an understanding of the various components probably as chair just being able to listen to people and give them an audience I think people appreciate they get a chance to be heard but then ultimately you need to make a decision that you think is right for the sport and if you can sort of remove any politics and just say right is the sport better off with this decision or not that sort of helps guide the decision making process mm. you don't have to answer this if you don't want to but have there been points we've had to come in and be like actually I think you know this is the way that we need to go as chair yeah, look, as, as chair, you try to avoid that, ideally. Uh, you don't want to say, well, no, you force your view on it. You want to mm. build consensus because then everyone's happy with the solution. Yes, you can do that. I mean, you know, for the lawyers out there, the, I've got a casting vote, but I don't use that. I don't think that's the right way to, to act as a chairman. Um, if someone's got merit in what they're saying, then you should take that on board. Similarly, 
if it's not right, then you should explain, hang on, have you thought about this or that? And then if you build the consensus, everyone says, okay, I get that, uh, we can move forward. And, and how did you feel the, the day that you became chairman, knowing there was a very exciting period coming up for Australian football? Uh, yeah, I probably didn't appreciate it as fully what it, what it meant at the time. Also, there's a lot of, on the international front, so it's not just um, domestically, but with football, because it is a truly international sport, and the need to build our relationships with the ASEAN and AFC countries. Um, that does require time, um, because I think culturally it's important to show respect and spend time with our Asian colleagues, and, and, then, and they're nice people, they're football people, and uh, that helps build the relationship whilst we pitch to get things, and uh, not just for us, for Australia, but also to contribute back to the AFC, because they see Australia as an important player, and uh, we've been able to help some of the other uh, ASEAN countries, but there's still more to do, in my opinion. Mm. I've just watched the um, the FIFA Uncovered uh, documentary. W- what's it really like from your perspective working or dealing with the AFC and FIFA? Yeah, I mean, I'm, it's an interesting program, that one, but it's probably a previous era now. I don't see any of that in my travels. Uh, in my discussions, predominantly the ASEAN and then the AFC. At FIFA level, my interactions have been really around the Women's World Cup, first lobbying to say why we were the best country with New Zealand to host it, and now just the practical stuff of actually getting up, getting up and running. And the, and the FIFA staff have been really good at working with us across a variety of uh, aspects for, for 2023. So how do you other lawyer partners feel when you have to say, I'm ducking off to Switzerland again for another FIFA meeting? Yeah, not quite like that. You're still on the... Uh, planes have got Wi-Fis nowadays, so um, you're always on call. So um, I think from a professional services perspective, you still need to be accountable. But I'm fortunate to have good partners and good staff that uh, do a lot of heavy lifting for me. Terrific. And um, uh, let's talk about the impact of this World Cup on football in Australia. What, what do you think the legacy of the Socceroos making the round of 16, and hopefully more, is going to be? I think it'll be immense already. I've you know, been having messages from friends, football people, ex-Socceroos. Uh, it sort of crystallises the power of the sport um, and... Drawing Argentina captures the imagination of probably even the non-football people in the country. So I'm hoping that it's part of a building block with the Women's World Cup next year to highlight our code. Uh, and I think if we can have another bump in participation numbers. We are the number one participation sport, but certainly there's, there's more upside there. And then solving our infrastructure problem is important. And then uh, supporting the leagues to go to the next level. And as people keep saying, if, if you can't see success, you can't you know, emulate it. And now hopefully boys and girls can see heroes in the Socceroos and the Matildas, and that's what the, who they want to be like. Mm. Uh, I ran into Harry Kuehl the other day, and he was a childhood hero of mine. So hopefully Matthew Leckie's Jackson Irvine's of the world have the same effect. But is there, is there a certain goal that you guys want to hit with relation to participation growth? Oh, look, we'd like to get by 2027 to 50-50, boys and girls. Um, the sky's the limit. There's certainly upside. Um, we're a very popular sport, uh, the, the most popular sport, uh, but we, that needs to be uh, coupled with infrastructure. I think one of our issues is not attracting young players to, to enjoy at whatever level, but with the um, challenges around fields, that's where our state federations need some support and we want to help get there. So it sounds like the, the issue with fields leads to uh, uh, an issue with players coming into the system is that what you're referring to yeah if, if you the, the evidence or the comments i get back is look we don't have a problem at club level attracting boys and girls 
but there's only so many teams we can put on the fields that we have. Mm. Uh, and you want everyone to have equal access and equal lighting and all that sort of thing. So uh, the more infrastructure we can get, the more we can accommodate the participants. Mm. And is there any particular part of Australia that you're looking at to really grow that? No, well, we've, we've done an, uh, a national audit. So each state will tell you, listen, there's, there are pockets where we could do with more. Mm. I think the figure we had is it's almost like $500 million dollars in infrastructure short. So I'm not talking mm. about Rolls, as I keep saying, Rolls-Royce. Yep. I'm talking about fit-for-purpose community facilities for boys and girls. So mm. uh, hopefully as councils and governments see the, the strength of our code, um, we can get some more traction in that space. Fantastic. And um, uh, <clears throat> and with regard to participation and the legacy of this World Cup, like uh, how much planning goes into that? Yeah, lots. It's, it's a combination of um, head office setting the strategy, which we're calling One Football, and then working with our member federations to do that, to take up the uh, invariably the uptick that you see on the back of a World Cup, and this one having success to get through to the knockout phases. Hopefully the, the uptick is even greater than expected. So there is a lot of work. Um, there's a lot of good work. There's a lot of good football people out there that don't, you know shout their name out they just get on with helping the sport because because they like it so to all those people I want to say a big thank you and and to people who are just kind of fringe sport supporters but kind of dip into the World Cup every now and again what would you say to them to be out to um, you know get around the Socceroos I'd tell them to get on board the sport full stop because I think Ruben as you know as you travel the world you can be in whatever country you want you mentioned football you've got something to talk about with uh, whoever you're talking to so from my perspective not just the Socceroos and the Matildas but it's the global sport you build friendships you build connections you build business relationships so there's no other sport uh, like it and nothing that connects like it so uh, I would say to them jump on board the Socceroos and the Matildas and I believe you had a flight home tonight is that still the case yeah I think given the results last (laughs) night it'd be a bit difficult to catch that flight back it's been now postponed until after the Argentinian game uh, but I'm happy to uh, um, to do that. And there's a lot of people, I think, scrambling for tickets for the uh, round of 16. I think Argentina obviously is a, a massive draw card. But, uh, yeah, from my personal perspective, I'm on the ground supporting the Socceroos. Awesome. Well, all the best to you and the team. Thanks very much for your time, Chris. All righty, well, great to hear from Chris there and just fantastic to hear about the the, the space that football in Australia is in. Uh, he would be pretty excited as to where they're at right now after our most successful World Cup in history and I think we all have a reason to get on the Socceroos going forward because that was truly inspiring. So great to hear from Chris there and, and well done to you, Rose, for, uh, for getting some more of his time. But uh you can connect with us on LinkedIn, plus be sure to jump into the SportsGrade community where you can catch us there. Head to sportsgrade.com.au slash community to join or head to the link in our show notes. Also, if you love the show, we'd love for you to rate the show five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. Subscribe on Apple or follow on Spotify. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 